This is a Suno India production and you are listening to Indian Economy Explained. Wearing a dark pinstriped three-piece suit and carrying a leather bag, RK Shanmukham Shetty's first words were an I quote, I rise to present the first budget of a free and independent India. This occasion may well be considered an historic one and I count it as a rare privilege that it has fallen to me to be the finance minister to present this budget. The budget which was for a period of just 7 and a half months had a targeted budget revenue of rupees 171.15 crore. India's fiscal deficit was estimated at rupees 26 crore at that time. with the revenue expenditure at about rupees 197 crore Hi I'm Kunika Balhotra research and communications officer for Sono India and your host for this episode of Indian Economy Explained To understand more about the union budget its history and how the financial priorities have changed since India's independence I spoke with Avni Kapoor director of the accountability initiative and fellow at the Center for Policy Research. Recently, Finance Minister Nirmala Sitaraman presented the first ever paperless and digital union budget for the fiscal year 2021 to 22. This year, all members of parliament received soft copies of the union budget. In this year's union budget, the government proposes to spend rupees 34 lakh 83000 236 crore in 2021 to 2022 as per the revised estimates the government spent rupees 34 lakh 50305 crore in 2020 to 2021 13% higher than the budget estimate i want to start by asking you the most basic question what is the union budget Why do we have union budgets every year? How did the tradition start and if you could briefly discuss what the first union budget looked like and how the financial priorities have changed since then. So at the very basic level a union budget for a year is basically the annual financial statement. Um and to put it even more simply it's a statement of the estimated receipts and estimated expenditures of the government for that particular year. it's part of the indian constitution so article 112 of the indian constitution talks about the need to lay out in parliament this statement so that um, everyone is on the same page and one gets a sense of what the government has in plan for the coming year the first budget um, of independent india was of course in 1947 and i encourage the listeners to go and look at it um, all budgets are available on indiabudget.gov.in and they are fascinating because as you rightly said you can get a sense of how the country's policies uh, priorities have changed over a period of time so of course the first budget was a short one um it was from 15th august um to 31st march so a little over 7 months um and presented by the finance minister chetty Um, as you can imagine, partition was a running theme uh, in the budget. There was a heavy burden on the exchequer, so finances were limited. And it was fascinating that the revenues at that time was 171 crore or so. Um, and to put this into perspective, the revenue receipts this year 
uh, in 21-22 budget were estimated at 17.8 lakh crore. So 171 crore versus 17.8 lakh crore. Um, that's how our budgets have changed over a period of time. I think another useful one that I would again encourage listeners to go and read um, about is the 1951 budget. Um, it's the first budget of the Republic of India. Um, and it, it was it had an important role because it laid down in some ways the idea of the planning commission. Um, the, the body of the planning commission, which is now no longer there since 2014, and we have the Niti but it played an important role in assessing the resources of the country um, and planning for the use of those resources. Um, so the, these two budgets, I think, um, are budgets that most of us don't actually end up looking at. Um, but they're useful to go back in history and just see some of these budgets, um, because like I said, you get a sense of how the country's priorities have changed. Um, and that's what budgets are an important uh, window um, of um, trying to assess some of that. Now, could you also explain to the listeners what the process of making the budget looks like? What is the blue sheet and why extreme secrecy is maintained around it? To, to explain for India specifically, uh, the way that it happens, and I'll stick for now on the budget formulation stage. Um, typically, the budget division of the Department of Economic Affairs under the Ministry of Finance is plays a really important role. Um, the process of formulation starts around August, September. Um, in fact, it started starting earlier because the budget date itself got shifted from 28th of February to 1st of February. Um, to start off with, um, the way that it works is that a circular budget circular is circulated um, amongst all ministries um, with detailed instructions on the kind of information that needs to be pre presented by the ministries to, to the Ministry of Finance. Um, so again, all of this, all the budget circulars are also on the Ministry of Finance website. So I think one of the complaints of the Indian budget making process is that we don't really have a proper pre-budget statement. Um, but what we do have is these circulars of instructions. Um, the reason that I mentioned the pre-budget statement is that the pre-budget statement kind of gives you a hint of where you are looking to move that budget or what, what is in store um, or what you're anticipating. But that is not put out, but what is put out in the formulation stage is circulars with instructions to ministries. Um, it's important to remember that the ministries are requested to put out three different types of estimates um, for both expenditures and receipts, um, if they have receipts. So earlier there was a planning commission and ministries would provide budget estimates for plan expenditure and non-plan expenditure separately. And the planning commission used to play a big role in the plan expenditure part of it. Um, now, um, with the planning commission no longer around, there are about three institutions that play a key role. One is, of course, the Ministry of Finance, um, which is the main body that is holding the budget. Um, the second one that is really important is the budget division within the Department of Economic Affairs. Um, that's um, a body that's responsible for the budget preparation. And then, of course, there's the Niti Aayog 
which provides um, recommendations and suggestions. So during the final stages of the budget preparation, um, all the ministries that earn revenue, and again, not every ministry is a revenue earning ministry, they'll provide estimates of how much revenue they anticipate. These are then, of course, collated by the Ministry of Finance. Um, and the way that it goes is that there is a lot of back and forth that happens. Um, in some of our analysis, we've seen that often ministries ask for certain funds and naturally not everyone will get what they had wanted. So there is a rationalization that happens across ministries. Um, and so, um, so some of that process happens. What you'll also see is that around January, December, um, a lot of meetings, pre-budget meetings and consultations are had with experts. So industry experts, so you have some with economists, you have some with industry experts, social sector, um, where the government tries to get in some views of people um, in different uh, expertise and specialization. And then, of course, um, after all of this is done, and as you said, it's shrouded in secrecy, I think the famous halwa ceremony takes place just before the budget goes for print. Um, this year, since they didn't um, print the budget and had it um, in digital format, I think um, what they did was that once it was all collated and prepared, that's when it probably went to print. Um, in terms of secrecy, I think it's it's partly to it's in some ways you're trying to isolate yourself from any interference. Um, I think the budget making process is a very sacred process. Um, so you don't want a situation where the budget is being leaked um, or any changes or anyone interferes in something that is very deeply and inherently um, a part of the sovereignty of a country. Um, so this blue sheet of paper, which has all the key numbers, is um, like the blueprint of the budget and that's also kept in usually the sole custody of um, one of the joint secretaries of budget. Um, I think there was a time when there was some, there was a fear that some of it had got leaked. Um, so they did shift um, the budget making process um, um, in, in terms of the location a little bit. Um, but it's always fascinating um, to me also when I first read up about this, that many of the officers who are involved um, in it are kind of kept in the basement. You don't really have um, contact with the outside world. Um, and so it is shrouded in secrecy. I did read the budget briefs by Accountability Initiative. They were very insightful. Thank you so much. Okay, so uh, what according to you are the government's priorities which are seen through the lens of the budget? What do you think? What are the issues that are kept on the back burner? And do you think that the budget addresses the priorities well? <laughs> so I do feel bad for anyone who's presenting a budget because um, you can't please everyone. Uh, so if you ask me, I will say some things worked well, some things didn't. And you ask someone else, they'll say the same thing. Um, it's always fascinating. Um, one of my my colleagues at the Center for Policy Research had actually put out opinion pieces um, that all of us wrote about the budget. And you can see that even between all of us, we are all part of the same institution. Um, there will be a difference of opinion based on the sector that you are most passionate about. Um, I've had the privilege of attending some of the pre-budget meetings. And even there, you can see that everyone comes at it very differently. 
think what we've been focusing a lot on um, at the accountability initiative is how do you kind of discern priorities of the government through the budget um, budgets are often seen as very technical documents but actually by studying them you can kind of get a glimpse of where the government is headed or not headed um, so the ways that we do that is um, by looking at uh, different ministries um, and comparing a across ministries so you get a sense of am i this year so for example this year there was an expectation that health would be priority given covid um, so to see whether that is happening or not you can actually look at the share of the health budget in total budget you can look at it uh, over a period of time has it increased has it decreased um, and so those are different ways in which um, one can actually try and slice and dice the budget to try and answer the question that you are asking as well, which is, well, what is the government prioritizing? So from our analysis, uh, broadly, what we've seen over the past few years, and again, this was a strange budget, budget was coming in the backs of an unprecedented crisis. Um, there was no doubt about it. And expectations were so high and yet, there was a, a significant constraint because we know that revenues have been low. Um, but what, what has been true is that over a period of time, if you study the last few budgets, there has been a push a lot more towards infrastructure. Um, so a lot of infrastructure sectors um, such as uh, the Swachh Bharat Mission, now you have the Jal Jeevan Mission, which again this year got a lot of mention. Um, you have a lot of other the affordable housing schemes. So a lot of infrastructure push is definitely something that this, um, the India government has prioritized. Um, and if I had to look at it compared to the previous government, um, I think in some ways, and that's something that I'm particularly passionate about is the, that I think some of the softer social sectors have got under prioritized in the push towards infrastructure. So at the end of the day, revenues are limited. Uh, we all work in a hard budget constraint. Um, so when you, so there'll always be winners and losers in sectors. Um, so if you look at the trends of education over a period of time and how much money has been going for the education sector, how much money has uh, also been going to some degree for health, um, some of the other social justice departments, child protection, all of those um, tend to be um, sectors that haven't gotten the same level of attention um, compared to some of the infrastructure schemes. Um, this year, I was a little surprised. I think the surprise came from the fact that I think I've said this now a few times that I think COVID-19 kind of laid bare the need for ha having a strong social welfare architecture. And by that, what I mean is we ended up relying a lot on some of the existing schemes, whether it was the National Health Mission, which actually directed a lot of the COVID expenditure, whether it was a Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, where we, we could actually leverage that scheme to reach out to lots of workers in a very quick uh, span, whether it was a food subsidy, um, again, you had to suddenly give ration to not just like increased ration to people who had lost their livelihood, but also the migrant crisis again alerted us of the need to push um, grains as much as possible. Similarly, midday meal, ICDS, all of these are like existing in, existing schemes that we were able to rely on quickly. 
So I think that's where I was surprised that this year I thought that we would continue to push them a little bit more because we needed them so much um, and um, it was a good time to like rethink about how, how do we structure them, how do we make sure that they are reaching the right um, people and on time. Um, the other thing that I was imagining, and again, this is like I said, we all have our wish lists before the budget, um, was that this often there's this rural-urban divide when we're thinking about social welfare architecture. Avni highlighted how these distinctions between urban and rural have become more stark because of the pandemic lockdown and ensuing migrant crisis. She said it is important to bridge the gap between rural schemes and urban schemes and to look at it more holistically. This year's union budget allocated Rs. 2,217 crore for 42 urban centres with a million-plus population to focus on clean air as well as includes a prelude to a voluntary vehicle scrapping policy. Could you share with us the possible reasons for the sudden emphasis being laid on environmentalism? And is this different from previous budgets? So, um, just to clarify in some ways that this push towards environment is actually coming mostly from the 15th Finance Commission. Um, so, the Finance Commission in that sense is a really important body and to a large degree, um, again, for the listeners who don't know, it's a con- it's a constitutionally mandated body. It's set up every five years. Um, again, as per the constitution, Article 280, um, calls for it being set up and one of its main roles is to evaluate the finances of both the union government and also states um, and kind of play this role of um, remedying the horizontal fiscal imbalance that exists um, by ensuring that the distribution of taxes so the union government collects a lot more tax uh, states need a lot more tax but different states are at different levels so how do you ensure that the distribution of tax is equitable and um, relatively fair um, they also tr- have the job of augmenting the resources of the state so apart from the tax devolution which of course is critical um, they can provide additional grants and aid um, to states either to supplement the resources of the local bodies uh, so panchayati raj institutions or urban local bodies um, but they also can provide grants to offset um, some of the revenue deficits, but also to ensure that certain sectors are prioritized or certain states that are uh, coming from a level of a slight disability, um, that they have enough funds um, as well uh, to be able to conduct the activities that they wanted to. Um, so with the so the the 15th Finance Commission in its interim report had actually brought back the attention of one brought back attention on air pollution um, and they had called for providing a lot of these grants um, to local bodies. It was quite interesting and two of my colleagues um, at Center for Policy Research, Santosh Harish and Shabani Ghosh have done a lot of work on air pollution. But when we were studying them, um, I think what was interesting about the way that they had introduced this allocation and at that time they had talked about it as 4,400 crores. Um, they had talked about like releasing it in two tranches. One was more performance linked and then the other one was unconditional uh, grants. This is of course pre-COVID. So with COVID, um, there were significant delays and I think that the first installment only went out in November. 
um so we are kind of behind on our commitments that or what the finance commission had wanted it's it's a problem that doesn't have one home um, or one ministry and so in that sense it is important to recognize it and uh, we were all very happy in some ways that the finance commission talked about it um this current report um, also mentions it and this time the the amount of outlay has kind of decreased but i think it goes up to about 2600 crores in 2005 2526 so the finance commission recommends that annual grants will be given for the next 5 years um and the reason that they are important is that they are meant to at least provide some sort of predictable funding to um the urban local bodies um it's going to be interesting to see how they utilize what actually happens with them but but in terms of why why did this suddenly come about i think it was the finance commission that actually pushed it um and so uh, we're all at least happy that air pollution is finally getting some recognition and the need for clean air also this union budget the government has allocated rupees 31050 crore to samagra shiksha abhiyan this is 11% higher than the revised estimates for the previous financial year but 20% lower than the budget estimates could you tell me more about this cuts despite the ambitious national education policy yeah so this comes back to what i was saying that in terms of priority wise i think to be honest i did think that education would have some cuts just because we've not had schools open for a long time um what some of the work that we've done so i think one of the things that we've seen in the social sector is that for some ministries you'll see these revised estimates being lower um and as a result of it it looks like a big increase but actually your base is lower so it's not actually an increase and if you compare it to the budget estimate it is a decrease exactly as you were saying as well um in terms of samagra shiksha i think um, one of the things that we tried to do um, was to try and see whether were states trying to in their plans can you see some of the both covid but nep being reflected in the planning process um and so every year what states do is that they are meant to prepare these bottom up plans in terms of the requirements um they're called annual work plans and budgets which are then aggregated up um and finally given um approved by the ministry um and resources are meant to be allocated based on those even though the planning process was delayed and in some ways it happened post covid had already hit the country um what what we were surprised by is that the plans didn't actually take into account a lot of these changes as much so there was mention of these changes but in terms of budgetary allocation there wasn't enough or enough of a shift in terms of what you're prioritizing given both nep but also the pandemic um so ict for example is something that we it's it's been again mentioned by both nep but again the pandemic required us to make a quick push to digital um and in a country where a lot of government schools don't have computers don't have electricity don't have um internet it's it's definitely going to require um significant resources so i think i was surprised a little bit there having said that um uh, in terms of cuts i think just the revised estimates being lower i wasn't too surprised by just because unfortunately a lot of while well, a lot of the private schools were able to do online classes i know that a lot of the government schools really struggled um 
by um, just not having the infrastructure in place. So it's going to be really worrying because I, we've always been a country that has had relatively poor learning levels um, and not always very age appropriate learning levels. I really hoped that we could have put in more money for education because it's going to be a big challenge. We were already um, not doing very well in education and now having lost this entire year, um, we're going to have to really quickly catch up. Um, so the area that I was, that I think that, and I'm still hopeful, let's see, um, the areas that I think that need prioritization immediately, uh, one of which is ensuring this catch up. So how do you ensure remedial education or just ways of making sure that children who have lost out a year of education are able to, A, are identified and then are um, given the kind of support and mentorship that they require. But of course, also, of course, some amount of ICT infrastructure is needed. And then lastly, I think the the area that we've not yet made progress on when it comes to even some of the NEP commitments, but also Samagra Shiksha's own commitments of how do you ensure an infrastructure that has a continuum of care. So right from pre-primary upwards, um, right now our education system is siloed where you have the Anganwadi is looking after preschool education, you have then uh, senior school, middle school, or uh, junior school, primary um, schools, and then higher secondary. Um, as you go higher, higher access becomes a problem. So how do you kind of try and think of it as a continuum of education um, is another area that I'm hoping that we find a way to uh, prioritize going forward. Could you also explain how the budgetary allocations for health, nutrition, and the education sector have changed over the years? So, so let's start with health. I think health is something that we've had a um, complicated relationship with. Um, I won't say that we haven't prioritized it. I think when the National Health Mission started, um, it was a great boon to the health industry in some ways because you suddenly had this mission mode way of functioning. Uh, while we have written a lot about centrally sponsored schemes, have their set of issues. I think when, when the National Health Mission started, it was it was a very innovative scheme because it talked about flexi pools. It talked about flexibility, recognizing that, again, health is something that there are such differences, both in terms of needs. Um, again, we're seeing this even in some of the COVID-19 numbers. Different states are performing so differently when it comes to both in terms of the number of cases, but also how they're able to respond, that it had embedded in it a system of flexibility. Um, and so that's when the initial big push for health came. Um, it's important to note though that health is definitely a state subject. Um, so in that sense, the final responsibility, even in our constitution on health rests with the states. Um, and so states do end up spending a lot more on health than the union government. But the worrying part of India in terms of its health commitment has been two things. One is the really high out-of-pocket expenditure. And the reason that it becomes really important is that health shocks um, often can really like move families up and down in income um, brackets. Um, so you could be doing really well or doing at least decently well and then it can happen to any one of us a big health shock and suddenly you're um, struggling to make ends meet the other area is i think that we've made commitments um, in terms of how much we are going to 
spend as a proportion of our GDP on health. And I think every subsequent government has made this. This is not uh, directed against any one government. I think every committee has talked about it. Different governments have talked about it. But we've just not been able to get there. Um, and so we're seeing a little bit of that continuing. I think the two areas that have been interesting, though, in terms of recent changes to health, one is, of course, the health insurance scheme. Um, because a lot of our illnesses um, can actually be, we don't necessarily require referral above um, to a higher authority. So how do you ensure that you have the adequate infrastructure, the adequate people in place to be able to do these diagnostics very much locally? I think there the struggle though, like, so we've made progress. Um, we haven't done an evaluation ourselves yet of, and I haven't seen any evaluations of actual on ground, what the situation is like. But what we do see and year on year is that we just don't have the requisite number of people uh, in terms of health professionals. Every year we see data where we, ha we don't have specialists. We don't have doctors in place at primary health centers. Um, even the status of some of these um, health centers, we don't have, we don't even meet the basic norms. So that's that's an area that still requires a push. What's been interesting for nutrition is that in 2017, 2018, um, we suddenly saw a big push for nutrition, and nutrition is a, is a difficult sector to deal with in some ways because there's no one ministry that hones it. Um, you have um, there's a supplementary nutrition side of it, uh, which is with the women and child ministry, but it's not just about providing food. There are so many different elements um, in the nutrition space. It is still a lot of the commitments that we made in 2017 still haven't been made. We talked about annual indexation of costs. We still haven't done that. We still not being able to budget enough for analysis that we did at the accountability initiative, um, trying to look at the required costs of even just some of the interventions. This is not even looking at the sensitive part of it, which is water, sanitation, livelihood, but even just looking at some of the basic core interventions, even there, we're just not being able to put in enough money. And what ends up happening in such a scenario is that if a household is not getting all the interventions at the correct time and in the required quantities, you're not really going to be able to make that dent um, in nutrition. And so I think how do you make everything converge, especially in the first thousand day window, um, is something that is still a big challenge um, for the country. And I think resources are definitely not adequate when it comes to the nutrition space. Also, what role does India's fiscal federalism play in the way the budget is structured and how the funds are allocated to the states and the local governments? So I think fiscal federalism definitely plays a big role um, in the budget. And part of it comes from the body that I mentioned, the Finance Commission. I think the tax devolution amount um, and how much of the money is going to be given to states as a proportion of the total revenue collected by the union government does impact the amount of money that the union government also has with it. Um, so I think the Finance Commission is... So one of the important documents that was um, tabled on the 1st of February um, was the Finance Commission report. So I would encourage the listeners to glimpse through it. It is a really heavy document, um, but at the same time, it does give 
it's it's a critical document when it comes to fiscal federalism the first time that a lot of people recognized the impact that uh, the finance commission can play um, on both fiscal federalism but also union government's own resources um, so for those of um, the listeners who haven't studied the 14th finance commission um, what the 14th finance commission did was that of the amount which is called a divisible pool which is the amount of money that can be shared um, so it's the tax collected but it ex- excludes cesses and surcharges and the cost of tax collection collection um, they increased the amount that was going to be shared by, with states from 32% to 42% so that was a big jump it was like a, um, and so what they did from the union government's perspective was a they had to give a lot of money directly to states um, and as a result of it what they initially did at least was that they ended up cutting the amount of the other way that they used to give money which was through centrally sponsored schemes so you'll see in 2015 actually um, a transfer in terms of the composition of transfers to states and by that i mean a lot more money through taxes less money through centrally sponsored schemes or uh, schemes um, of course that did lead to a lot of uproar and there was this feeling that net net most states did not gain because i'm giving you more money in one way but i'm taking away money in the other way um and in fact a lot of the analysis that has happened is that actually there wasn't really a increase in amount of money going to states it was just more a shift in the nature of funds um going the other thing that we've seen in terms of this center state dynamic that comes about um in play is the increase in the way so one of the interesting things is that cesses and surcharges like i said isn't part of the money that is shared with states and so you can see over a period of time the union government in order to increase its own revenue base increasing these cesses and surcharges what that means for states is that again net net they end up not gaining as much because the divisible pool itself keeps shrinking if you are charging a lot more cesses and surcharges so most of us would have seen in our bills we had the education cess we had the krishi kalyan cess sometimes the swachh bharat cess um and over a period of years you've seen that these um cesses have increased and that has been a big problem and many states have been very vocal about the fact that they are losing out because of this um so in terms of center state dynamics just to summarize i think what has been interesting in from a fiscal federalism perspective is a to study how the center kind of directs its expenditure to states um so while centrally sponsored schemes has always been an important policy tool we saw initially a, a, a decline in the way that money was going through that but over a period of time you've also seen that it's hard for the union government to completely get rid of centrally sponsored schemes so again you you'll see multiple committees talking about the need to rationalize how many schemes can you have um let's let's prioritize let's not encroach on state topics so i spoke about health being a state subject um similarly agriculture what are the areas that this union government should play a role in and what area should it let go of 
we've still not answered that question i don't think and that often leads to this little bit of tug of war where the center uses centrally sponsored schemes to kind of direct state priorities in a certain area um but it's not um, on one hand states need that money um because it is another source of revenue but at the same time it often comes with so many conditionalities that you're not able to necessarily use it in the way that you want to or there are common norms across different states which sometimes make it difficult for a kerala to make use of it the same way that a bihar can make use of it um, and so how do you find that balancing act um, is a question that hasn't yet been answered but i think that's going to be that's always the fascinating part of studying india's fiscal federalism we started off as a fiscal federalism with a very strong center um, and i don't think this is right from when we were independent and i don't think that we've been able to do that complete switch of saying states are the ones that are going to be um, actually play a much bigger role when it comes to uh social policy so, so they should get their due as well thank you for the detailed explanation is there anything else that you would like to add i guess i would just conclude by saying that i think um to all the listeners um like i said um i think most of us listen to the budget speech but don't actually ever look at the documents um it's important to remember that the budget speech is is useful to get a sense but at the end of the day it is partly about political messaging um in the budget speech you can't present every number you are trying to summarize and focus on areas that you think people also want to hear um so i would encourage everyone to have a look at the actual documents um as well don't, don't just go by what the speech says i think this year this number 137% increase in health budget ended up being extremely confusing for lots of people because it was mentioned in the speech but when you actually look at the numbers you realize that it's not as straightforward it's not that just that the ministry of health got a big increase actually the ministry of health increase was much uh, lower um it's not that hard and we at the accountability initiative are, are often conducting workshops um, on how to read the budget so do reach out to us in case um you need any help or have any questions on um how to read the budget and what to how to use the budget not just as a as a policy tool but um also to ascertain government priorities also to hold the government accountable um and also to force to um increase our own knowledge and information of what's happening in the country and the economy please rate our podcast and leave a comment if you like it underreported and underrepresented stories can become mainstream only if it reaches more people so please support us by visiting our contributing page on our website sunoindia.in or follow us on facebook twitter or instagram